Last time we spoke about the intense fighting that broke out on the island the Japanese would soon nickname the Island of Death by Starvation, that of Guadalcanal. The first action of Mataniko saw the tragic death of Lieutenant Colonel Frank Goge and his fellow Marines at the hands of the Japanese. Then Colonel Kiano Ichiki and his detachment were sent to rid the island of what the Japanese High Command thought was a smaller force of US Marines. Their misjudgment of the American forces on the island proved to be an absolute disaster for Ichiki and his men. 777 Japanese lost their lives during the Battle of Alligator Creek, including Ichiki, who had to take his own life in shame. The American Marines were shocked at how few surrendered and how many would try to take American lives with them to the grave. The battle for the Solomons is far from over, and now we look to its sea. This episode is the Battle of the Eastern Solomons. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind all of you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I have content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. As Ichiki took his own life as an ultimate act of atonement for his failure, his second echelon and the 5th Yokosuka SNLF Marine Force were en route aboard three transports. They were escorted by the light cruiser Jinsu, the flagship of Rear Admiral Tanaka, alongside eight destroyers. Tanaka led the convoy out of truck on August the 16th while Admiral Yamamoto assembled two large task forces consisting of four battleships, four carriers, one escort carrier, 16 cruisers, one seaplane carrier, and 30 destroyers to begin operations in the South Pacific. Since the Battle of Midway, there had been an overhaul in the IGN's tactics. Because of the loss of so many carriers, now Japan's 12 battleships occupied the hub of the fleet organization and planning. Now the bulk of cruisers of the 2nd Fleet, also called the Advance Force, would be placed 100 to 150 miles ahead of the carriers, where they could finish off enemy ships and cripple incoming enemy carrier planes. They also would be used as bait to lure American carriers. With less carriers now, the IGN would have just two fleet carrier divisions each, nominally composed of one light and two fleet carriers. The light carriers would be tasked with cap, while the fleet carriers would be free to perform strikes. There was also a shuffle as to what they could carry. Light carriers would carry only 24 fighters and 9 torpedo planes, while fleet carriers would operate 27 fighters, 27 dive bombers, and 18 torpedo planes. This represented an increase in fighters and dive bombers, and a decrease in torpedo bombers. To augment this, cruisers and battleships would be given more float planes. Admiral Yamamoto sent the 3rd and 2nd Fleet with a lot of haste to the Solomons, not allowing for much consultation. They had intended to pause at truck for planning, but inexplicably, Admiral Kondo sailed his 2nd Fleet before Admiral Nagumo's main body had arrived. The two fleets made a rendezvous at 7am on August the 21st, then split up again heading south, separately. Their only point of agreement was that the American carriers were first priority. Defending the reinforcement convoy stood at a very distant second, cause screw the IJA, am I right? Admiral Fletcher's Task Force 61, consisting of three carriers, one battleship, seven cruisers and 18 destroyers, were loitering around southeast of the Solomons, 
just out of range of the IGN search patrols from Rabaul. The Americans sent two patrols daily looking for the IGN carriers while their intelligence listened to the radios. On August the 16th, American intelligence figured out that the third carrier fleet of Nagamo was sailing south. Then on August the 20th, some float planes spotted two American carriers 250 miles southeast of Guadalcanal. Orders were rushed to Tanaka to head northwest to keep his forces out of reach from the American carrier planes. The next day, the Japanese received word Mavis were under an air attack by American carrier planes. The 11th Air Fleet mounted a strike of 26 Bettys and 13 Zeros to try and hunt it down, but they failed to find it, so on their return trip back, they decided to mess with, where else, Guadalcanal. When they arrived, they found four Wildcats led by Captain John Smith, the commander of the VMF-223. At around noon, the Marine planes engaged all 13 Zeros near Savo Island, making the Japanese pilots believe they had found over 13 Wildcats in the air, and they claimed to have shot down four. They shot up those four Wildcats mightily. One of them managed to return to Guadalcanal, flown by Sergeant John Lindsay, who had to make a dead stick landing. Another crashed into the sea, but no one died in the engagement. On August 21st, Japanese patrols found a small convoy of two freighters and a cruiser heading towards Guadalcanal. These were the cargo ships Fomalhaut and Alhina, bearing much-needed supplies, escorted by the destroyers Blue, Henley, and Helm. Admiral Mikawa ordered destroyers Kawakaze and Yunagi to intercept them, just as Admiral Turner directed Blue and Henley to leave the convoy to hunt for the Japanese transports incoming to Guadalcanal. But bad weather prevented Yunagi from making her way, leaving Kawakaze pressing onwards alone. Again, the Americans relied on radar during the moonless nights while the Japanese used their night vision experts. Once again, the Japanese night vision won out because at 3.55 a.m., Blue was 600 yards ahead of Henley when she suddenly picked up on radar a warship inbound. Blue maintained her course and speed, training her guns and torpedoes for the target. But then suddenly, at 4 a.m., the orange-red glow of a torpedo hit sheared off Blue's stern. The warhead ripped Blue's steering gear, paralyzing her and killing nine of her crew while wounding 21. The Kawakaze had landed a long-lance torpedo. Henley waited upon her sister's ship until dawn, but it seemed Blue was immobilized. That same day, the IGN commanders were pondering some ominous news. Ichiki's failure disturbed them, but not nearly as much as the confirmation that Henderson Field was now hosting aircraft. Then they learned five P-40s were en route to Henderson Field that very day. So the commanders proposed Ichiki's second echelon be delivered post-haste. The 17th Army HQ objected to this order, stating they did not believe Ichiki had lost and that they were confident he would hold the airfield. Tanaka was understandably worried about the presence of aircraft on Guadalcanal, alongside some looming American carriers. And thus, here is where we get to see some problems within the Japanese services. On August the 22nd, Tanaka asked who was going to provide his forces air cover. Tanaka's immediate superior, the 8th Fleet, promptly asked the 11th Air Fleet to do it but Admiral Tsukahara preferred to support the convoy by offensive rather than defensive means. I'm not sure if I've ever stated it here, but the Japanese in general preferred offensive means than defensive means. Well, weather foiled a strike group to be dispatched to Guadalcanal that day, so the Admiral resolved to do it the next day. Tsukahara then asked if Nakamo's carriers could assume the role of babysitter but the combined fleet believed the carriers must be held in reserve to deal with the American carriers, and attacking Guadalcanal would betray their presence. The product of all of these shifting demands took 36 hours to resolve. Then on the morning of August 24th, the IGN carriers were given the babysitter task in the end. But until then, Tanaka would have no air support. August the 23rd afforded bad weather yet again, so Tsukahara's aircraft returned from Guadalcanal with all their bombs intact. Nagumo's scouts searched but found no American carriers, but the American scouts found the IGN carriers forcing Nakamo and Kondo to pull north at 6.25pm. 
The next day at 9.25 a.m., one of McCain's PBYs spotted Tanaka's convoy 250 miles north of Guadalcanal and began to tail it. Without any air cover, Tanaka could only raise an angry fist at the PBY. At 3.10, the USS Saratoga launched 31 Dauntless and 6 Avengers to try and take out Tanaka. During this time, Tanaka won permission to once again pull out and the PBY reported he was changing course. But in the course of communication failures, this report never made it back to Fletcher until late that night. Thus, the Saratoga strike group kept hunting, unable to find Tanaka. Eventually, they decided to land on Henderson Field. There was a lack of food and ammunition for the Marines on Guadalcanal, and the PBY spotting of Tanaka's convoy only brought more anxiety to Vandegrift. Vandegrift decided to risk all of his small air force to try and hit that convoy. At 4.30, he sent all 9 Dauntless and 12 Wildcats off, uncertain if he would ever see them again. Many of the pilots had to turn back because of bad weather. Around the same time, Vandegrift's little air group was coming back, Admiral Fletcher was making some very big decisions. Intelligence sent a report at 5pm that indicated they had figured out the location of Shokaku, Zoikaku, and Ryijo at truck. Concluding a battle was not imminent, and under orders from Admiral Gormley to release a carrier to refuel, Fletcher detached the WASP group for refueling. At sunset, WASP headed south, transporting two valuable cargoes of 62 aircraft and their experienced pilots. At the same time, Henley was beginning to tow Blue away at daylight of August the 22nd, first towards Lunga, then to Lagi. This would prove to be a fatal mistake. Henley had a difficult time towing Blue, and during the dark hours of August the 23rd, she had reached the haven of Tulaki Harbor. The Americans received word the enemy was close at hand, and they ultimately decided to scuttle blue at 10.21. Meanwhile on Guadalcanal, the Saratoga airmen got a chance to sample some of the Marines' emergency rations as Admiral Mikawa sent the destroyer Kagero to sweep the waters of Iron Bottom Sound. Kagero arrived off Lunga Point at 10.30 and tossed a few shells at the Marines and their aircrew guests before departing. At the same time, the Kagero approached Lunga Point, Tanaka decided to reverse course back for Guadalcanal. At 6 a.m. on August the 24th, Nagumo and Kondo set course for 150 degrees at 20 knots. Shokaku, Soikaku, and Ryujo carried 171 planes, while the two available American carriers carried 154. The Japanese were heading south, assuming full battle formation. The Japanese had a vague idea where the American carriers were, to the east somewhere, and Kondo's advance force moved with absolute caution. Ryujo had detached at 4am with the heavy cruiser Tone and destroyers Amatsukaze and Tokitsukaze to cover Tanaka's inbound convoy if the American carriers decided to show up. During the early hours of daylight, both sides began searching operations, both proving useless. Then a PBY saw Ryujo at 9.35am and maintained surveillance. Other PBYs soon found the rest of Kondo and Nagumo's forces, but they did not see the carriers hiding far in the back. Fletcher got word of Ryujo's sighting at 9.47am, but without the WASP group, he was quite nervous and he declined to order an immediate strike against Ryujo. At 9.30, some of Saratoga's aircrew on Guadalcanal took off to return to the Saratoga by 11 a.m. Then, at 11.30, the American carriers swung north, edging closer to the Ryujo. With a second report of Ryujo's course in hand, by 11.30 a.m., Fletcher elected to send more patrols to search for the other carriers before committing to an attack on the Ryujo. At 12.13, Saratoga sent fighters to prowl over Emily, and at 12.39, Enterprise had 16 Dauntless and 7 Avengers performing a search north. Fifteen minutes later, the fighters picked off a Betty just seven miles off from the task force. The Wildcats managed to take the Betty down just before she could report back, but Fletcher assumed that she had reported back in. At 12.20, Ryujo sent a strike group to hit Guadalcanal, 15 Zeros and 6 Kates. By 1.20, Ryujo's attack group was picked up by Saratoga's radar, 100 miles bound for Guadalcanal. Fletcher immediately ordered Saratoga's aircraft to hit the Ryujo. 
25 minutes later, the Saratoga tossed 30 Dauntless and 8 Avengers straight at Ryujo's likely position. At 2.20, the Ryujo strike reached Guadalcanal, where they fought 14 Wildcats and 2 P-40s. The ensuing mayhem resulted in the Japanese bombings being ineffective. Three Zeros and three Kates were destroyed over the island, with another Kate crash landing on Nadai Island later on. The Marines lost three Wildcats for their efforts, but Henderson Field was still standing strong. Shortly after 2 p.m., a Chikuma floatplane at long last had found the American carriers. Enterprise sent fighters to try and take it out, but not before the floatplane was able to finish making a complete report. By 2.55, Shokaku launched 18 vowels and 4 zeros, while the Zoikaku tossed 9 vowels and 6 zeros. At the same time, the battleships Heiwe and Kiroshima began to speed up towards the Americans. An hour later, Zoikaku and Shokaku launched another 28 vowels and 9 zeros. Once all the aircraft were launched, the carriers turned east as 7 B-17s chased over them, trying to bomb them to no effect between 5.50 and 6.19. Some Avengers tried to perform some high-level bombing attacks on the Ryujo at 2.28, but they were unsuccessful. They were quickly pounced upon by Zeros, which shot down one and damaged another quite badly. At 2.40, two Dauntless found Kondo's advance force around 225 miles from the American carriers. They tried to bomb the heavy cruiser Maya, but utterly failed. Then another Dauntless spotted the Shokaku and Zoikaku. They maneuvered to attack them while broadcasting their sighting report. Shokaku swerved mightily, causing the Dauntless bombs to barely graze it, though a minor hit killed six men. The cost of the initial American patrol was one Avenger. A pair of Dauntless and another Avenger was forced to land on Stewart Island. Admiral Fletcher was struck in an awkward position of having to dispatch his main punch at the IGN light carrier while two fleet carriers had suddenly materialized. Meanwhile, 15 Dauntless and 5 Avengers targeted Ryujo, while another 7 Dauntless targeted the cruiser Tone. At 3.40, the attacks begun, and the Americans missed 10 consecutive bomb attempts on the Ryujo, forcing Commander Felt to quickly order all aircraft to shift their target to the Ryujo. The Avengers led by Lieutenant Bruce Harwood split into two groups performing an anvil attack, landing a hit on her starboard bow as the Dauntless landed three hits over her. The Americans would not know until January of 1943 that they had sunk the light carrier. At 4.02pm, Enterprise's radar picked up a large blip bearing 320 degrees 88 miles away. During the next 35 minutes, both carriers launched more fighters until 53 Wildcats were in the air, when the radar was now picking up the enemy formation just 44 miles off. The radar technicians indicated the formation seemed to be at around 12,000 feet, and by 4.30, gunner Charles Brewer caught sight of the Japanese formation bearing 300 degrees around 25 miles from Enterprise. Lieutenant Commander Seki split his attack into two groups of 18 and 9, curving around the north. Seki brought his pilots to about 16,000 feet as the Wildcats intercepted them, forcing a very confused air battle. Perhaps seven Wildcats reached nine of Zoikaku's vowels during the approach, and about another ten Wildcats got the vowels during their dives. The Zero escorts hindered the Wildcats viciously from climbing in altitude to hit the vowels. Dogfights broke out around 20,000 feet. As much as the Wildcats tried to take down the vowels, at 2.42 an electrifying message went out from the Enterprise. The enemy planes are directly overhead now. 18 vowels from Shoikaku intended to hit Enterprise, while 9 of the Zoikaku went for the Saratoga. But in all the chaos and the confusion of the aerial fighting, all the surviving vowels ended up going for the Enterprise. 5-inch shots burst into the air as machine guns began unloading as well. The tenacious Japanese dive bombers toggled their bombs at 1,500 to 2,000 feet, and the first drop missed. But they were so close, they clanged against the carrier's hull. Then a bomb hit close off the port quarter, ripping the hull and sending gunners flying, greatly slacking the anti-aircraft fire. At 4.44, a bomb smashed the wood flight deck on the starboard forward corner of number 3 elevator, going down several decks and detonating in a petty officer's mess room, slaughtering over 35 men. 
The flight deck bulged upward two feet from the hit, and the elevator jammed. A second bomb impacted 15 feet outboard of the first, erupting amongst 40 rounds of gunpowder, killing another 35 men. Rolling billows of flame and smoke curled over her stern as the carrier took a third bomb hit near the number two elevator, causing a 10-foot hole in the flight deck. While most of the valves were being battered by Enterprise, the North Carolina attracted five of them. This battleship held 102 anti-aircraft guns ranging from 5-inch to .50 caliber and was looking for a fight. The Vals came at her at 4.43, but they all missed their bomb hits against her as the North Carolina lit them the hell up. The entire attack lasted less than 15 minutes. The Japanese had lost 17 Vals and 3 Zeros, while the Americans lost 8 Wildcats. Half of the dive bombers were victims to the Wildcats and the other half fell to anti-aircraft fire. The Japanese came back reporting they had just left two American carriers ablaze. You really gotta love the false battle reports. After this, there was a lull in action, but for Enterprise, there was no lull. Fires were roaring as fire control teams scrambled to defeat the blaze. The control teams performed miracles and soon the fires were out and the flight deck was patched. Corman tended to over 99 wounded men, of which 4 would die, adding to the 71 already dead. A returning pilot to the Enterprise had this to say of the scene. Sailors, bodies were still in the gun gallery. Most of the men died from the concussion, and they were roasted. The majority of the bodies were in one piece. They were blackened, but not burned or withered, and they looked like iron statues of men, their limbs smooth and whole, their heads rounded with no hair. The faces were undistinguishable, but in almost every case the lips were drawn back in wizened grins, giving the men the expression of rodents. The posture seemed either strangely normal or frankly grotesque. One gun pointer was still in his seat, leaning on his sight with one arm. He looked as though a sculptor had created him. His body was nicely proportioned, the buttocks was rounded, there was no hair anywhere. Other iron men were lying outstretched, face up or down. Two or three lying face up were shielding themselves with their arms bent at the elbows and their hands before their faces. One, who is not so burned badly, had his chest thrown out, his head way back and his hands clenched. The blackened bodies did not appear as shocking as those only partially roasted. They looked more human in their distortion. At 5.46, an hour after the last bomb hit, Enterprise began hitting 24 knots and commenced recovering her aircraft. By 6.21, she had 25 planes aboard when she suddenly lost steering control because of ongoing effects from the bombing. Her rudder was jammed hard to starboard, leaving Enterprise careening out of formation and nearly hitting Balch. Soon Enterprise was making a little circle at 10 knots. It would take until 6.58 to regain control over her rudder, and it was right then when Enterprise's radar operators saw another large blip. That large blip was a second Japanese attack group being led by Lieutenant Takahashi. The radar operators nervously watched as the blip passed 50 miles astern from their task force, and then swan east directly towards Enterprise. No Wildcats were available to intercept, they were all low on fuel and ammunition. This might, however, have been a saving grace for Big E, as their presence in the air might have given away Enterprise's location more easily. Luckily for the Americans, Lieutenant Takahashi's group was given an erroneous report of the Americans' location, resulting in them banking away at around 6.30pm, failing to find the American task force. Imagine being the guys operating the radar, they were probably shitting themselves. If the Japanese pilots had gone just another 10 minutes, they most likely would have caught the carriers helpless. Back at the Japanese carriers, there was an argument about sending a third strike. Admiral Nagumo, who had led the victories at Pearl Harbor to the Indian Ocean Raid and then the disaster at the Battle of Midway, had no fire left in his stomach, it seems. After gathering up all of the aircraft, Nagumo led the carriers north to refuel. 
It's rather ironic that Nagumo yet again did not order a third strike. Meanwhile, the American carriers maintained a southeasterly course. The day was not done for the Americans. Just before the Japanese attack had commenced, Admiral Fletcher had ordered all remaining divers and torpedo bombers to strike at the Japanese. Enterprise and Saratoga launched what aircraft they could, despite the fact their pilots had very little in night training. They searched vainly for the Japanese. Many groups became separated as a result. One group led by Lieutenant Turner Caldwell elected to take them to Guadalcanal rather than continue searching for the ships in the dark. Five of Saratoga's Avengers, led by Lieutenant Larson, had become separated from the rest and did continue to hunt for the enemy, however. At 5.35pm, they stumbled upon Admiral Kondo's advance force and decided to attack him. The Japanese put up heavy anti-aircraft fire and zigzagged as Larson's pilots made their runs. They released at 200 to 350 feet, going around 200 knots, but all missed. Another group of Dauntless, led by Lieutenant R.M. Elder, found a ship they assumed was the battleship Matsu, and commenced diving runs at her. But what they had actually found was a seaplane carrier called the Chitose. Elder's pilots would claim a single direct hit on the seaplane carrier, though this was not true. They had actually made two near misses, causing a bit of flooding damage to the warship, sending her back to truck. The last bit of potential action would come from the Japanese submarines. Admiral Kondo had detached the submarines and surface ships to go south to hunt the enemy for a night battle. By midnight, most of the ships turned back north, failing to find the enemy. But the I-17 had spotted the American carriers at 12.30, heading south at around 20 knots. Fifty minutes later, the I-15 saw them as well. The commander of the submarine squadron 1 tried to gather all of his submarines together to give chase but the American ships had gotten away by 2 a.m. Thus, the third carrier battle of the Pacific War was over. Admiral Tanaka watched Ryuja's funeral pyre before taking his transport south under darkness towards Guadalcanal. Can you imagine being Tanaka, going north, south, north, south, all the time, desperately trying to get those boys safely onto the island? Given the presence of American aircraft on Guadalcanal and the American carriers somewhere in the southeast, the prospects for his transport group were quite bleak. He asked his superiors what he should do, and at 10.07pm on August 24th, the 8th Fleet ordered him to head northwest. But when Admiral Mikawa learned that they had potentially sent two American carriers to their grave, he countermanded the order given to Tanaka and told him to continue heading south again at 11pm. My god, this poor guy going up and down, up and down. On top of the false reporting of the fates of two American carriers, the garrison on Guadalcanal reported witnessing the takeoff of Saratoga's aircraft group during the morning of August 24th, and they had not returned. The conclusion made was that the American aircraft had largely been destroyed, but this was a false report. So the combined fleet decided to stage a destroyer bombardment alongside a floatplane attack. From Shortland, Captain Shiro Yusatake took Destroyer Division 30 to Lunga Point to perform a 10-minute bombardment at midnight. The scattered shelling killed two Marines and wounded three, but did negligible material damage. To add to the Marines' misery, this was followed up by float planes which bombed and strafed at them. Unfortunately for Yusatake, at 2.30am, three Dauntless led by Major Maungrum had come across them and managed to make bombing runs at his destroyers. Fortunately, their bombing runs were all misses. Three other Enterprise pilots took off at 4am to follow up this attack and they found the Mochizuki trying to pick up stranded Ryojo aviators. Miochizuki would suffer minor damage from their attack. Captain Yusatake reported his bombardment to be a complete failure and he signaled his concerns that the American aircraft were still prowling around. But the combined fleet simply ignored this. In the twilight hours of August the 25th, a PBY found Tanaka's convoy and by 4.30am placed its location to be around 180 miles north of Guadalcanal. Captain Yusatake joined up with Tanaka by 7.40am, but by this time an attack group of 8 Dauntless and 8 Wildcats had been airborne for almost 2 hours. The Americans had first hunted vainly for the Ryujo. Soon the Wildcats were at their limit and had to turn back to Guadalcanal. But the Dauntless carried on for another 50 miles searching west, and at 8.08am they found Tanaka. Five Dauntless targeted Tanaka's flagship as another three went for the largest transport they could see, 
The convoy had no air cover, and little in the means of anti-aircraft fire, because they had made the mistake of thinking the aircraft overhead of them were friendlies. One Dauntless landed a tremendous hit on the Jinsu. The bomb knifed through the cruiser's bow, exploding within her, demolishing the radio room and killing a large number of sailors. The blast knocked Tanaka unconscious as fires began to rage within the ship and flooding occurred in her forward magazine. Then Ensign Christian Fink of Enterprise landed a hit on the Kinru Maru, igniting a fire which spread to the cargo's ammunition. Last, Major Malgram made a solo dive on the Boston Maru, scoring a near miss off her stern. She had a small fire emerge on her deck, however. As the American pilots headed away, they could see Tanaka's convoy banking away from Guadalcanal. Tanaka regained consciousness and he moved his flag to the destroyer Kagero. He sent Captain Yusatake's ships and two patrol boats to tend to the wounded Kinrumaru, while the Boston Maru and the Daifoku Maru departed under destroyer escort to get beyond the range of American aircraft. As the Japanese tended to the Kinrumaru, at 10.27 a.m., three B-17s emerged overhead. The Japanese knew these high-altitude bombers had basically never made a hit in the past, so they just kept working. Their reward was for one of the B-17s to land a bomb squarely in Mitsuki's engine room, killing 40 men and sending her to the bottom of the ocean by 11.40. Yeah, it seems sometimes those B-17s can actually manage to land a hit. As the captain of the Mitsuki said, Even the B-17s could make a hit once in a while. When the combined fleet heard reports of the attack, they immediately cancelled the convoy's landings at Guadalcanal. The operation to get more Japanese on Guadalcanal had failed. Now they would have to figure out another means to reinforce the stranded forces on the island. But that's all we got for today for the Solomons. For now we need to return back to Green Hell. After replacing his Southwest Pacific Air Force commander, General MacArthur sent the Australian 7th Division to New Guinea, with one battalion going to Milne Bay and another going to Port Moresby. These were experienced combat troops led by a highly regarded combat commander, 47-year-old Major General Arthur Allen. Allen had fought in World War I and led the 7th Division against the Vichy French forces in Syria and Lebanon, and even took on the Germans at Tobruk. Soon hundreds of Australians were making the slow, grueling climb towards Izurava to thwart the Japanese advance. Allen's 2nd and 27th Battalion were the first to leave Port Moresby. They were led by Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Key, beginning their trek to the battle area on the morning of August 16th. By the late afternoon, they reached a village called Uberi, 32 miles from the capital. Heavy rainfall made the mud a nightmare, literally sucking boots off men who were carrying really heavy loads as they walked. The following day, the men had to climb the Golden Stairs. These stairs consisted of several thousand pieces of logs that had been jammed into a muddy mountainside held in place by wooden pegs. The exhausted men would often slip and crash into another, making it a miserable affair. Many would be forced to climb with their hands and knees as rain poured down upon them. By the time the men reached their destination, they were no longer in fighting shape. As Captain Philip Roden described the conditions of his men, Gradually, men dropped out, utterly exhausted. Just couldn't go on. You'd come to a group of men and say, Come on! We must go on. But it was physically impossible to move. Many were lying down and had been sick. Some ate, others lay and were sick. Others just lay. Some tried to eat and couldn't. The men were showing signs of dysentery, fever, open wounds caused by the ripping of the undergrowth, and other terrible ailments. Japanese survivors of the Kokoda track would call it the path of infinite sorrow. Speaking of the Japanese, they were not faring any better on their side. General Hori had arrived, increasing the troop morale, but their logistical situation was terrible. Around 3,500 men were posted from Deniki and Kokoda to the front line at Izurava. They all required three tons of food and other supplies daily. Trucks had to move 25 miles from the coast along the slippery and dangerous log roads built up by the Japanese engineers, which often were subjected to Allied air attacks. 
After that, they had to unload the supplies into the hands of local native carriers, many of whom were brought over from New Britain and the poor Korean laborers who suffered tremendously since the beginning of the war. As they marched, the supply carriers suffered the mud horrors and unbearable humidity of the lower altitudes, then the freezing conditions of the higher altitudes. General Horry estimated he would need around 4,600 carriers marching along the track to keep his men fully supplied for combat. The trek stretched out to a 21-day round trip, and the carriers consumed an increasing amount of their loads to simply have enough strength to make the trip. There was a constant problem of carriers falling ill, tumbling off cliffs to their death, or deserting. For the Japanese at the front lines, their situation was critical. They were forced to make aggressive attacks to push the Allies into retreats in order to steal their supplies, as their own carriers took too long to get to them. More often than not, the Allied supplies they captured were virtually the only thing they lived on. When the Australians began to figure this out, they started sabotaging their food supplies, which resulted in Japanese being put out of action because of terrible dysentery and other severe ailments like really bad diarrhea. It was awful stuff. And on top of all of this, there was everyone's personal friend in New Guinea, malaria, which spread like wildfire. When uncontaminated food was discovered during an Australian retreat, chaos ensued among the Japanese troops who were scrambling to grab as much as any man could carry. One Japanese war correspondent wrote of a scene where the troops found a hut filled with untouched goods in a village. Here in the Papuan Mountains, the standard of living was higher than in Japan. I thought I saw something of the appalling power of the Anglo-American civilization that Japan had so recklessly challenged. General Hori took personal command of the troops facing Izurava, and he commenced his advance during the night of August 25th. Hori's plan was to make a faint frontal attack to draw the Australians in, while most of his forces circled around to attack their flanks and gradually block their retreat. Hori was not aware the Australians had been reinforced by powerful elements of the regular army. At this point, both sides were quite evenly matched. The Japanese had around 2,130 men, and the Allies 2,292, around Izurava. The Australians showed a stiff resistance facing Hori to modify his plan. Hori moved some heavy guns, and on August the 30th, eight of them were blasting shells into the defenders' lines, alongside several 75mm mountain artillery pieces. The Australians were forced to make a fighting withdrawal day after day. General MacArthur read daily reports of the action taking place in the mountains of Papua, prompting him to write on September the 10th, The Australians and Papuans are fighting tenaciously and gallantly under conditions of extraordinary hardship and difficulty. While the Kokoda track was being fought over, General MacArthur had to turn his attention to another route he thought the enemy was going to hit before Port Moresby. MacArthur warned his staff he was concerned the Japanese would send a division supported by land and carriers to come around the eastern end of the island. If you pull out a map of New Guinea, you will see the eastern half jets out into the Coral Sea, and at its tip is Milne Bay. More than 22 miles long and averaging 10 miles wide, the bay is dominated by heavily wooded Stirling mountain ranges. As I've previously mentioned in the series, Milne Bay was researched to see if an airfield could be built there to accommodate medium and heavy aircraft. MacArthur envisioned using such aircraft to stage attacks against Buna and Rabaul. His initial surveys found a factory complex used by the Lever Brothers before the war, and whose grounds were large enough to accommodate at least three airfields, in addition to a small field around there. Back on June the 22nd, MacArthur ordered the occupation of Gilly Gilly, and three days later, two cargo ships escorted by a small pair of Australian warships entered Milne Bay. By the end of July, construction was moving along rapidly, and elements of the 75th and 76th squadrons of the RAAF landed at a nearly complete number one airstrip. They were flying P-40 Warhawks, which the Australian nicknamed Kitty Hawks. While the three airstrips were being built, other works were being constructed like new wharves and more expensive roads coming into the area. Meanwhile, at Rabaul, Lieutenant General Hayakutake of the 17th Army had been working on plans to flank Port Moresby from the southeast. He selected the tiny island of Samari, just a few miles into the sea near the opening of Milne Bay, 
as an ideal location for a seaplane base. The island was less than one square mile in size, but it had once been a busy trading post for stopover ships sailing between Australia and East Asia. What Hayakatake did not know was that the Allies feared the Japanese would seize the tiny island and had ordered its population evacuated and destroyed all the wharves and structures there. The island was virtually uninhabitable. When reconnaissance flights over Samari indicated the island could only support a few float planes, Hayakatake had to change his mind. He needed something to provide air cover for an invasion of Port Moresby, somewhere that could support medium and heavy aircraft. Well, what do you know? Milna Bay seemed perfect, and guess what? The Allies were even building it all up for them to pluck. The IGN 8th Fleet decided to attempt an amphibious assault inside Milna Bay using SNLF troops, as the IGA was too busy along the Kokoda Track or stranded on Guadalcanal to offer any help. More reconnaissance indicated Milna Bay was holding around 31 enemy fighters, and that the airstrips were being built rather fast so time was of the essence. Without the necessary troops available, Hayakutake asked Vice Admiral Mikawa to proceed quickly with plans to capture Milna Bay. The Japanese made the mistake of assuming that Milna Bay was lightly garrisoned, as it was a new base, when in fact it held numerous men and was using camouflage to great effect. While the Japanese prepared their forces, the Allied forces in Milna Bay increased, by August the 21st, 4,500 men of the 19th Infantry Brigade under the command of 49-year-old Brigadier George Wooten had arrived. This brigade had extensive experience fighting the Italians in Libya and the Germans in Tobruk. MacArthur would say of Wooten, He was the best soldier in the Australian Army who had it in him to reach the highest position. Milna Bay was soon home to nearly 8,000 Australians and 1,400 Americans alongside 600 members of the RAF. A new overall commander arrived, Australian Major General Cyril Close, a 50-year-old veteran of the fight against the Germans in the Middle East. He was an experienced combat officer who immediately conducted a quick survey of the men under his command and the territory before preparing a defense against a possible Japanese attack. He assigned the less experienced 7th Brigade to the front line of the defense and the veteran 18th Brigade to the reserve so they could quickly hit the enemy if they landed. Close sent several patrols into the mountains to guard the trails from the northern coast along Goodenough Bay. How much... More Australian do you get than naming something good enough. Oh my god. Close did not know where the enemy would come from, nor when, but he assumed they would hit very soon. During the last week of August, the American codebreakers uncovered the fact the IGN submarines had formed a picket line across the entrance to Milna Bay, a typical Japanese pre-invasion tactic. General MacArthur met with General Kenny, the man he recently hired to take the role of air chief, and they discussed countermeasures for Milna Bay. The Japanese planned a pincer attack. The main landing would take place inside the bay at a place called Rabi, three miles east of Gili Gili. From there, they would attack along the coast, directly into the Allied base. This force would be 612 members of the Kure 5th SNLF Marines, 197 from the Sasebo 5th SNLF, and 362 men from the 17th Naval Pioneer Unit. The second part of the pincer would come down along the northern coast from Buna, made up of 353 men from the Sasebo 5th SNLF Marines. This group would take barges during the night and land at Tapoda in Goodenough Bay, directly north of Milna Bay. They would make an overland march for 10 miles to attack the Allies' rear. In all, the Japanese were 1,524 men strong, and they would crash down on what they believed to be a few Australian militia companies not 10,000 men, half whom were combat veterans. Big oops. On August the 23rd and the 24th, aircraft from the Japanese 25th Air Flotilla conducted several bombing raids targeting airstrip number one between Gili Gili and Rabi. General Kenny concluded these raids had been a prelude to an invasion and decided to reduce the enemy air cover before the attack had even begun. He had sent eight B-17s with incendiary bombs to hit Rabaul's aerodromes, alongside a squadron of P-39 Aria Cobra fighters to attack the Japanese fighter base at Buna. Ten enemy aircraft were put out of commission during the strike. The main invasion force, led by Rear Admiral Mitsuharu Mitsuyama, 
commanding the 18th Cruiser Division, departed Rabaul at 7 a.m. on August 24th, heading south through the St. George Channel. In less than two hours, the RAAF Hudson patrols spotted them as they rounded the Trobriand Islands in the Solomon Sea. They would also be spotted by three Australian Coast Watchers stationed on the islands confirming the sighting. Those clutch Coast Watchers, the unsung heroes. While the main fleet approached Milna Bay, seven large motorized barges departed Buna, heading along the coast for Tepoda, and those were also spotted by Coast Watchers. The plan called for a late-night landing, but the barges made very good time, so the commander, Toreshige Tsukoka, decided to land nearby at Goodenough Island. God, I just, I still can't get over the Australians calling it that, that's just so funny. But anyways, he was going to allow his men to eat a meal and rest. Kind of like a Japanese picnic. Well, reports were flooding in, and the Allies tried to toss B-17s at the convoy, but really bad weather hindered them. But, by midday, the clouds over Milna Bay lifted enough to allow 10 Kitty Hawks of the 76th Squadron to look for the troops at Goodenough Island. By 3pm, 12 more Kitty Hawks and a Hudson joined the effort. They found 7 barges pulled up on the beach. And as the Kitty Hawks came swishing down guns a-blazing, the Japanese ran for the tree lines. The raid killed 8 Japanese and destroyed all seven of the barges along with the communication equipment, food, arms, and ammunition. The picnic was a bust. The entire force was stranded without the ability to communicate. Named after the 19th century British Commodore, Good Enough. Fancy that, a Brit named Good Enough. Anyways, the oval-shaped island measured 13 miles wide and 21 miles long. It was covered in swamps and grassland, with some jungle and rainforest in the western edges. Unbeknownst to the Japanese, the island was harboring a small American group operating a fighter control station that provided early warning for Milna Bay. Imperial headquarters knew nothing of the fate of the SNLF troops on the island until one man found a canoe and he paddled all the way back to Buna by September the 19th. Yeah, that's a long time. The following day, two destroyers left Buna to try and pick up the survivors, and a flight of five B-17s sank one of them, the Yayoi, leaving the shipwrecked survivors making their way to Normanby Island, where they too were stranded. Two more destroyers would have to come and rescue everyone. What a hell of a mistake it was to have a picnic on Goodenough Island. In fact, it only got worse. The Japanese continued to fly supplies to the island which were being driven off by Allied aircraft. The poor Japanese on the island were surviving off limited rations and coconut milk, with a bad case of malaria catching most of them. By October the 3rd, a submarine came with a landing barge and supplies, but the barge only managed to take around 50 wounded and sick men to Buna. The submarine tried to keep making return trips, but Hudson bombers attacked it. MacArthur would eventually order troops to seize Goodenough Island, ensuing in a small battle where 13 Australians died, killing almost 40 SNLF Marines. During a lull in the fighting, two landing craft swung in and got 261 Japanese off the island to safety. As silly and stupid as this whole affair was for Goodenough Island, the fate of the main invading group would be even worse than that, believe it or not. Lieutenant Chikanori Moji, the paymaster of the 5th Kure SNLF Marines, recalled during a meeting of the officers prior to the departure on Rabaul that Commander Masajiro Hayashi said that nothing was known yet about the enemy's situation in the relevant area. When I glanced at him, I saw in his eyes, as he said this, that he seemed near tears. He had been unable to do reconnaissance of the area by air, nor could any special aerial photographs be taken. Enemy strength was not known. By 9.50pm on August the 25th, with the entire fleet in Milna Bay, the invasion force, including two light tanks, began going ashore. They faced zero opposition. Then, as they began unloading their equipment, they realized they had landed in the wrong damn place. They had landed several miles east of Rabi, near a village called Wagga Wagga. Reports poured in by reconnaissance flights that the Japanese had arrived in the bay, but General Close had no idea where. Then a small firefight broke out in the dark after an Australian patrol vessel accidentally ran into the invaders. 
11 Australians would die in that encounter. Clouds hindered high-level bombers from locating the enemy ships the next day, although one bomber did drop a load, smashing two transports, forcing the remainder of the fleet to withdraw from the bay. The clouds did little to hinder the low-altitude Kitty Hawks, which bombed and strafed the landing zones, however, and they destroyed virtually all the powered barges the Japanese hoped to use to move along the coast. Now the Japanese were forced to follow the muddy coastal tracks through swamps and streams to get to Gili Gili. The Japanese fled inland, into the jungles to avoid further air attacks, dragging what supplies they could salvage from the landing zone, with Kitty Hawks strafing the hell out of it. The two light tanks managed to get inland and soon around 1,000 soldiers were marching their way to their own doom. Along their way, many SNLF would attack small villages in the area, a very cruel act. The Japanese marched in mud, which grabbed their boots right off them, and with their two light tanks leading the way. Just before they reached an abandoned Christian missionary station, the KB mission, a company from the 61st Battalion ambushed them. Despite their inexperience, they had fought the Japanese veterans to a standstill, and after several hours, they had to make a fighting withdrawal. After reorganizing, the Japanese renewed the battle, but more troops showed up to support the Australians. Unfortunately, the Australians had nothing to deal with the two tanks, forcing them to withdraw a mile over to the Gamma River, where they formed a new defensive line. There they received backup in the form of the 2nd and 10th Battalions of the 7th Division, some veteran fighters. At 8pm on August the 27th, the Japanese launched a powerful attack at the Gamma River line with the two light tanks leading the front. For a few hours, the Australians repelled four frontal assaults, suffering heavy casualties. By 2am, the exhausted Australian troops were forced across the river with the Japanese in hot pursuit. The Australians were soon pushed all the way to Number 3 airfield, which was still under construction. There was another defensive line established around the incomplete airfield by the 61st to 25th Infantry Battalions, alongside the American 709th Anti-Aircraft Battery and two companies of American engineers. Will the Australians and Americans be able to hold the airfield? Well, you're just gonna have to tune in later to find out. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, please check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube where I have content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s, all the way up to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. The Battle of the Eastern Solomons was another indicator that the IGN was far from defeated. The Japanese attack on Milna Bay was a colossal mistake that will cost the Japanese hundreds of lives and prove to be a turning point for the Australians. Soon. It will be time for the Australians to push the invaders off the island.